Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Once again, I'm with my favorite guest. Naturally, he's referring to me. I'll be interviewing myself yet again. And our topic today is going to be an overview of the science of postmortem survival. Now, before we get started, there needs to be a qualification because the science of postmortem survival can be traced back as far as the 1840s. We're talking about over 150 years. And I'm about to provide an overview for you in the next less than half an hour. How is that going to be possible? I'm glad you asked the question, but who's interviewing who, after all? In any case, of course, we won't be able to delve into the thousands of myriad details. This is going to be a bird's eye approach. So, let me begin by asking you. Let me pose the first question. What are the main things to consider when looking at the science of survival from an overview, from a bird's eye? vision. We can look at the types of causation uh, that we're going to be considering. And uh, there are three primary forms of causation that I think are worth looking at. The first, obviously, is empirical because the science of survival has to be very different from the theology of survival. Science is not based on doctrine. It is based on evidence. In the empirical approach, the approach taken by parapsychologists and psychical researchers from the very beginning has been, let's look at the evidence. And, and there's a wealth of evidence. The problem, of course, has, has, has been <laughs> theories are hard to come by. And uh, especially because this is a kind of science where uh, the mainstream scientific community is so wedded to their materialistic worldview that for the most part, even though there's over 150 years of brilliant work in this field, they don't even want to look at it. So, the first thing to consider then is empirical evidence, evidence that we gather through our senses, through our observations of the external world that point toward the possibility of survival of personality, of human consciousness in the absence of a physical body. And uh, by in far, that's the most significant portion of, of this field, is the empirical field. But there's more than that. I think uh, I'm inspired by the great psychologist William James, uh, one of the founders of the uh, American philosophical tradition of pragmatism. In a nutshell, you could say pragmatism means if it works, it's true. And in the field of survival research, there are many, many pragmatic areas where you can say the deceased are interacting with us. They are having an impact in our world. 
And, and those are the uh, pragmatic virtues of uh, discarnate life, you might say, in the physical world. So that's the second element. And the third type of causation that I want to look at here, or justification if you wish, is what Aristotle called the, the final cause, the teleology, the purpose. Where is it all leading? What is the future? of survival research. So those that's the overview in, in a nutshell. That was great. And now let's delve into, uh, in the limited time that we have, the empirical evidence for survival. Well, it's worth saying that there are, I'd say maybe 20, more than 20 different areas of investigation, human endeavor that all point to the possibility of survival. Now, some of these things are very extensive and very obvious. The largest is mediumship, research on spiritualist mediums. And uh, here I'm going to enumerate three different kinds of mediums, mental mediums, those who purport to and uh, give evidence of receiving information from discarnate entities. That's mental mediumship. Physical mediumship is it's an even larger category in the sense that uh, <laughs> while, while we think of physical mediums as extremely rare and the things they produce are so bizarre that people tend to ignore it completely and say that just can't be true. We're talking about spirit materializations, trumpets flying through the air, uh, paintings materializing, airports, uh, all of these things that are done at the agency of spiritual entities. But somehow the medium, the physical medium, is a significant catalyst for this. And uh, you have a large group of people who say, you know, I, I've never witnessed it, so it can't be true, or it's obviously fraud, and there have been many examples of fraud that have been found in history. Nonetheless, one has to say, and, and I have to say in particular, having investigated psychokinesis, uh, in my study of the PK man, that I don't doubt that these things really occur. And uh, when you look at the care with which investigators have been looking at this phenomenon, going back to Sir William Crookes in the 19th century, uh, the only way you can deny it out of hand is by saying, I refuse to even look at the evidence, which is, in fact, what many so-called skeptics, uh, more accurately known as scoffers, uh, do. They, they just deny it without uh, any effort to look at it. And, and that's a normal human response. I don't blame these people. I certainly felt much the way that way myself with regard to bizarre evidence. And now there's a third type of mediumship which is really fascinating known as direct voice. This is where the it's it's really a form of physical mediumship I suppose. It's where voices appear in the room maybe through one of these trumpets which is sort of like a megaphone. Um, but it, the, the medium is not using their own vocal cords. They are not speaking. Their lips are not moving. It's not ventriloquism. 
uh, for goodness sakes. Um, but again, the medium is an important catalyst. But research with mediums is, is just one category of research. There's near-death experiences. There's all the research on reincarnation. And, and you can divide that up. You've got the memories of young children. You get the memories of adults who spontaneously awaken. You get memories that occur under hypnotic regression. That's the most problematic. But uh, so you have all of that. Then another big category of empirical evidence are what we call after-death communications. All sorts of signs and symbols, dreams and visions that occur to people, particularly when they've lost a loved one. Uh, some of this has been validated by researchers. And researchers approach these sorts of things typically like detectives in uh, law enforcement. I have a degree in criminology and criminalistics is a very good science to model this kind of research. It's usually not an experimental science where the researcher is in total control of all the variables, although there are occasional experimental studies that have been done, for example, with near-death experience, another huge category. Uh, there have been studies done in hospitals where you get a certain percentage of cardiac arrests occurring routinely, and you can survey those people to see which of them have had out-of-body or near-death experiences. And, of course, out-of-body experiences is another category related but different than a near-death experience. But I think it's worth saying that even with all of these categories, and I know we've only gone through less than a third of them so far, um, there's the controversy within parapsychology of those who say it doesn't matter how good your evidence is, it can be explained as living agent psi. ESP and psychokinesis amongst the living. So there's no need to postulate the idea of an afterlife. It's an extra hypothesis. Uh, we all know we're here in the physical world. Why postulate an afterlife? Uh, big controversy within psychology. There are people such as my friend, uh, Stephen Browdy, who take this point of view much of the time, not all the time, actually. And uh, his friend, Michael Seduth, who I hope to have here on the New Thinking Aloud channel, who is much stronger in his uh, advocacy of, of that point of view. How, how does that fit in? Isn't it ironic within parapsychology that you have those who would deny the afterlife, because it could all be ESP and psychokinesis amongst the living. Then in the larger scientific community, you have uh, groups of people who say, no, nah, even ESP is all BS. Psychokinesis, it's all BS. None of this exists whatsoever. Uh, the irony is that some of the best evidence for the existence of ESP and psychokinesis comes from the study of mediums. The evidence that they produce is so strong that for many decades it was known as super psi, very sophisticated, elaborate examples of extrasensory perception of great accuracy. And I think most survival researchers think of it this way, that 
extrasensory perception and psychokinesis are additional pointers to the afterlife, and much of the evidence couldn't exist without it. How do mediums, after all, communicate with spiritual entities? It is through extrasensory perception, and the fact that the medium as a catalyst is required for um, a lot of physical mediumship, not all, you, but uh, uh, seems important, does suggest that there's an element of psychokinesis there. So, the, the best realistic way to look at it is that all of this is, is part of the mix that needs to be considered. Extrasensory perception by itself. If you want to imagine a world in which living people have psychic abilities but discarnate entities don't exist, uh, well, I think you can postulate it. It's not logically impossible, but uh, I don't know of anybody who has highly developed extrasensory abilities who subscribes to that worldview at all. I tend to think that the existence of extrasensory perception really points to a an ontology, a philosophy, a worldview that allows for survival that almost, in fact, I would have to say requires survival. And that's the worldview that we've discussed many times on the New Thinking Aloud channel, particularly with my friend Bernardo Castrup, who is an advocate of uh, what he calls analytical idealism as a school of philosophy. There's so much to talk about. Are there other categories, you would say, of empirical evidence that we uh, should be paying attention to? There are many categories of evidence that we haven't yet discussed that point to the idea that consciousness exists separate from the brain. You know, uh, the great philosopher Bertrand Russell once wrote that uh, survival of human consciousness doesn't exist because we all know consciousness is dependent upon the brain. And when the body dies, the brain is dead, therefore there can be no consciousness. However, there's lots of research now uh, out of body experiences being just one example that suggests that consciousness is not dependent on the brain, that the brain rather acts as a reducing valve to limit the amount of consciousness that a human being normally experiences so they don't get overwhelmed by being in a constant state of cosmic consciousness, knowing everything all at once all the time, like God so to speak. The human organism can hardly sustain that. And uh, by that, I mean, for example, terminal lucidity. I experienced this with my mother who had Alzheimer's. But before she died, she had a period in which she sat up, she was clear, she was lucid, she was articulate, she uh, talked at length to about her life in great detail and clarity. Uh, and actually, you know, within a week she had died. And there are many instances of people with severe brain damage, much more than my mother, who had a, not a severe case of Alzheimer's, uh, who shortly before their death, sometimes within hours of their death, are able to uh, ex manifest a 
uh, great lucidity, more than their brain, if it was dependent on their brain, would have been capable of. The brain uh, that is severely damaged cannot just all of a sudden <laughs> wake up. But what it suggests is that the brain is so deteriorated that it can no longer filter out this larger consciousness. The larger consciousness comes through. So that's yet another example of research that points to the idea of a larger consciousness outside of uh, the brain, not dependent upon the brain at all. Anything else you'd like to discuss on the empirical side be before we move on? Let me just say briefly, there's a whole line of evidence that involves scientific instrumentation. It's called uh, ITC, Instrumental Transcommunication. There's been a previous interview about it with uh, Stafford Betty. Um, there's also, I've just seen a wonderful documentary on the topic by uh, my old friend Dan Drazen. If you want to know uh, in depth about ITC and EVP, electronic voice phenomena, uh, it's, it's a vast field. There are tens of thousands of hobbyists who are, uh, and some of them believe they're having regular two-way conversations with their departed loved ones on the other side. It's tricky. Uh, it requires a, a persistence. It requires a certain amount of, I think, mediumistic abilities. It requires a passion to engage in this research. But when you look at the best evidence, it's hard to deny. Okay, now I know there are other areas that we haven't covered yet, but you talked about the pragmatic impact of survival as being part of the science of survival. Uh, what do you mean by that? Here I'm talking about examples where discarnate entities are acting as agents in the physical world. They are producing important results. Some of the most dramatic occur, for example, when a murder victim will spontaneously make themselves known, maybe to a friend, maybe to somebody with mediumistic talents. And there are cases where people have been arrested and convicted of murder based on the testimony of a discarnate entity. Now, to my knowledge, this hasn't yet occurred in a courtroom. It's occurred with the police, and the police are sufficiently convinced by evidence produced by, a, let's say, a medium or a friend of the uh, murdered victim uh, who, who say, I, you know, I have these messages. They've told me how they were murdered. And uh, people have been convicted of murder because of this. Uh, there's some wonderful evidence. But on the positive side, there are uh, discarnate entities, uh, visual artists who seem to come back and produce art through mediums or sometimes take possession of a person. There's a, a famous case in the early 20th century of a deceased artist, in effect, possessing uh, another individual and producing artwork through them. Same is true of literature. The same is true of music. There's the famous uh, medium Rosemary Brown in the UK who produced all sorts of, uh, I think hundreds if I'm uh, correct, uh, works of music. Uh, 
ostensibly through the agency of deceased musicians working through them. There are inventions that have come through. Uh, William Blake, the great artist, poet, mystic, claims that uh, his style of engraving, for which he became famous and even in his own lifetime, and now hundreds of years later, today, still famous, that that invention, the way he created those engravings, was given to him uh, uh, via detailed conversations with his deceased younger brother, who was also an artist. There are examples in the field of psychotherapy. There's an entire school of psychotherapy. Today, it's called the Hoffman Quadrinity Process. It was originally known as the Fisher-Hoffman Process. And uh, presumably, I mean, according to Hoffman, who was a tailor at the time, owned a clothing shop in Oakland, California, his psychotherapist, Fisher, died in 1966, as I recall, and after his death, within a year or so, appeared at night on the bedside of uh, his former patient, Hoffman, and uh, did psychotherapy with Hoffman and gave Hoffman the instructions to create a whole school of psychotherapy. Hoffman said to him, I'm just a tailor. How am I supposed to initiate a school of psychotherapy? And the spirit of Fisher said, don't worry, doors will open for you. I will be helping you. And today, the Hoffman Quadrinity process is, is being offered, uh, to my knowledge, around the world. So, there are other examples, but what we're talking about here are instances in which deceased spirits are actors actively producing effects here in the physical world. It's, it's not the sort of thing that is often researched in parapsychology or psychical research, but some of these cases are extremely well known and have created worldwide movements. Isn't that fascinating? What, uh, <laughs> what a wonderful world we live in. And, and, and uh, you know, where you're going with this, I can tell, is, is that the evidence for survival after death is actually overwhelming. And so that leads us, of course, to the third area, which is where is it all going? What is it leading to? What's on the horizon? What are the next steps as we are being drawn toward a final cause, as Aristotle might say, a, a telos? Now, and I know teleology or the idea of purpose or final cause is, is generally not accepted in science, but we all work with this. Every, uh, every invention, for example, has a purpose. Inventions are created because of the effects they will produce. So, we live in a world full of purpose. Indeed, we do. And the way I see it, we're on the brink of a new era. I'm going to call it the era of psychonautics. We've lived for the past 50, 60, 70 years since the uh, first moonshot in 1968, of, of which I was a witness, of course. Um, 
astronautics. But psychonautics is the exploration of inner space. And I think of it as, in some ways as being comparable to, let's say, the 15th century when explorers like Columbus were uh, discovering a whole new continent. In this case, the whole new continent, I'll call it hyperspace. Hyperspace is very complex. It can be mapped physically, actually. Well, not in three-dimensional physical space. Hyperspace is a kind of physical space of more than three dimensions. You could think of it that way, or you could think of it as a mathematical space. But if the afterlife is real, if spiritual entities are real, they need to be somewhere. And somewhere is in hyperspace. And we have, at this point, a great deal of mathematics concerning hyperspace. In fact, a lot of that mathematics was first published in the 1993 edition of my book, The Roots of Consciousness, by my friend Saul Paul Sirag, uh, who's probably the most sophisticated mathematician looking at this area right now. He's also the author of a wonderful book of mathematics called Adex Theory, in, in which uh, he shows the unification pretty much of all the major mathematical tools used today in theoretical physics. Uh, so I think we're at a point scientifically where we can begin to take these mathematical tools and combine them with the exploration of hyperspace. That exploration, when I refer to psychonauts, I'm talking about lucid dreamers. I'm talking about advanced meditators. I'm talking about uh, mediums and, and uh, hypnotic subjects who are very skilled at working with trance states, at working with the hypnagogic state, for example. I'm talking about um, Buddhist meditators who go into the bardo planes, and of course uh, traditional mediums as well. These people are all exploring this interface between the uh, awakening physical world in which we imagine we live much of our day, and of course we all live part of our day in the dream world as well. And the dream world, according to depth psychologists, interfaces with the afterlife. And I think we're at a point now where there's a lot of sophisticated work going on. If you scan the literature, there's work in uh, what people call astral projection and the like. People are exploring. So if, if you think of the empirical research as people here on the physical plane reaching out to find evidence of the afterlife, and if you think of all the pragmatic uh, discoveries that, to which I've referred where agents in the afterlife are reaching out into the world of the living and creating impact. The next stage of the science of human post-mortem survival, in my opinion, will be a handshake. It will be people working together from both sides on a large scale. And this has already been occurring, for example, in small spiritualist circles where people gather once a week or once a month in an intimate circumstance in a private home. That's where some of the most amazing phenomena reported by uh, those who study mediumship actually occur out of view of the mainstream in a way that sheltered and protected uh, 
but in a way that can sometimes be very carefully monitored. And I see that uh, the larger culture will be dragged along <laughs> kicking and screaming because the truth of the matter is the materialistic worldview, the worldview that not only wants to deny survival, wants to deny extrasensory perception as well. Is it possible, let's just look at that, that many people uh, at a subconscious level who want to deny out of hand and without even looking at it the evidence for extrasensory perception, psychokinesis, and survival, could it be that they're afraid of what they will find? That it's frightening to them. I'll just leave it at that. I won't go into the many reasons why they might be frightened and maybe we all have legitimate reasons for being frightened of these possibilities. I know when I was a little child the idea of dead bodies frightened me. But um, today, well I'm, it's not as if I'm fond of dead bodies, <laughs> but today I think we can look beyond that. Well, what a fascinating discussion. I know we have barely, barely scratched the surface of what could be said regarding the science of survival, but this was an overview, so thank you for being with me. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.